Well, good morning. Glad you're all here with us. Uh, glad for those of you who are joining us online or at our Vallejo campus. Um, I actually discovered a very important date for me this week. Um, it is April 3rd, 2044. That is my death date. I know that because of the internet. There is actually, actually, there's a number of websites where you can go to. Um, the one I looked at was deathclock.com. Um, you put in the day that you were born, a little bit about your uh, family history, a little bit about your you know, eating habits, all of that kind of stuff. And then you push the button and it tells you April 3rd, 2044, which means I have 26 years and seven days left on this planet. Uh, which comes down to actually 9,503 little squares on the calendar. Now, I actually did this about 9 or 10 years ago. And uh, the date that I got 9 or 10 years ago was April 23rd, 2046. So somewhere I have lost 2 years and 20 days. <laughs> I'm not sure what I've done, but somehow I've lost some of that. Uh, which kind of makes me like, okay, I'm not going to look at that one anymore. Um, the truth is nobody knows actually the day that you're going to die. No one does. Um, but what we do know is for every one of us in this room, that day will come. That life is temporary, that it will not last forever, um, and that there will come a day for every one of us in this room where that life on this earth will end. But the teaching of the Bible is that that is not the end, that actually we were all created as eternal beings, and we were created for an eternal relationship with an eternal God, and, and that all the way back at the creation, we chose to do things our own way, and that messed everything up, and so God has been working all through human history to restore that relationship and to restore that eternal hope for every one of us. Um, and, and that's what the message of the Bible is all about. Now, many people think, many Christians think um, that Jesus came, died on a cross, rose again so that my sin could be forgiven. And so I know that I'm going to heaven. And then pretty much I tread water from now until that day. And that is not Jesus' mission. At the very, very beginning of his mission, um, he attended his local synagogue and read from the scroll in Isaiah and declared that the kingdom of heaven has come. That, 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 and all through his ministry, he said things like the kingdom of heaven is among you. That this isn't something far off, off into eternity. This is here and now. In fact, in fact, he taught us to pray, among other things, to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And on that first Palm Sunday, some 2,000 years ago, people cut down palm branches as Jesus entered into Jerusalem the last week, beginning of the last week of his life. And they declared, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. But none of them fully understood what that kingdom was all about, nor do we, I think, to this day. But one thing is clear, that he came to bring that kingdom, the power and the presence of God to this world to your life and to mine. And that eternity is not just something far off in the future. It's actually something that starts here and now. And we're in this, we're actually in week 10 of our Believe series. And by the way, if you have not yet 
This book is available. It is available for free. You can pick one up at the information desk if you have not already picked one up. But we're encouraging people not just to get one for yourself, um, but for $5, you can buy a second copy, um, which is a huge discount, by the way, um, and go through it with somebody else. And it's never too late to jump in. This is actually going to be a year-long um, series that we're going through. And the first part is, what do we believe? The second part, which we're going to kick off right after Easter, is how does it impact the way that I live my life today? And then the third is, in, in the fall, is going to be talking about, okay, so now, who am I becoming in light of all of that? And today we're finishing that first section. It's week 10 and we're talking about eternity, but we're not talking about eternity just like by and by pie in the sky when I die, but eternity starting here and starting now, because that's the real thing. If I truly believe that there is an eternal destiny for me, how does it impact my life today? And Paul wrote an awful lot about that in his letters to the churches. One of his letters, his second letter to the Corinthian church, he wrote these words. If you want to follow along. Uh, in your Bible, it's the book of 2 Corinthians, which is just the second letter to the Corinthian church. Um, and in chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, this is what he wrote. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, groan, longing to be clothed, clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will no longer be found naked. For while we're in this tent, we groan and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we live by faith, not by sight. We're confident, I say, and we prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. Verse 14, for Christ's love compels us. Because we're convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So, from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us this message of reconciliation. What Paul is saying, in essence, is that our hope of eternity, that, that eternity that we are expecting, has an impact and an influence on our lives here and now. And I kind of want to unpack that a little bit for you this morning, because there's three things that he talks about here that he says, in light of of eternity, this is how it affects your life here and now. And the first one has to do with our circumstances and our situations and the things that we experience through life. And one of the things that he says is in light of eternity, that we can live with a confident hope that that. Our hope and our confidence is not bound by the circumstances of our lives 
in a day-to-day basis. It's about something more and about something bigger. He puts it this way. We know that the earthly tent we live in is destroyed. We have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Now, what he's doing is he's saying, I want you to see this in perspective, that as real as this life might feel, this is just temporary living. Okay, this is just a tent that we live in. But there is for us something even far more real. And, and, and that's what he wants us to understand, that the life to come, that eternal life is, is far more real. As the comparison is between a tent and a building. Now, a tent is about temporary. A building is about permanence. A tent is about um, nomadic living. And, and, and no real sense of home. And yet a building is about permanence and home. And he's saying, when, when you think about eternity, here's our problem. Then when we think about the eternal, we think ethereal. Which is like, you know, harps and halos. And, and a lot of times we think about heaven. That's what we think about. Harps and halos, kind of disembodied spirits. Um, you know, hanging out on clouds in one really long, unending church service. (laughs) Now, I love when we come together as a church family, but that does not appeal to me. He says, that is not eternity. You've got to change the way that you're thinking. He says, it is something far more real, far more solid than that. When we think eternal, we think ethereal. And when we think ethereal, we think unreal. And it doesn't become a reality to us. And what happens with that is that we tend then to draw our focus. It just naturally gravitates to the here and the now. The stuff that we can taste and touch and the things that we experience in this life. And, 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 and heaven is just kind of some vague, far off in the distant, whatever it might be. And, and I'll give you proof of that. How many here want to go to heaven? How many here want to go to heaven today? Not so much. Why? Because it, it's, it's, that, it's not that real to us. And what Paul wants us to understand is it is far more real than you can imagine. It is so real that by comparison, our existence on this earth is so temporary and, 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 and in a tent as opposed to our home. And when that happens, when, we, when it's not that real to us, then what is on this earth becomes too real to us. And the pleasures that we seek become the final end of our pursuits. And the difficulties that we experience um, become overwhelming to us. And so he goes on, he puts it this way. He says, while we're in this tent, we groan and are burdened. We groan and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. We groan and are burdened because this takes up too much of our reality. And so it becomes overwhelming to us. And it seems like it will never end. In fact, he picks up this idea in his letter to the Roman church. Same thing. He says it this way. The whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we eagerly await our adoption. He says, the groanings of this life, they're real, but they are not the sum and total of reality. That yes, this is real, but don't put too much into it. 
And don't let it overwhelm you because this is temporary. And there's something far more real ahead. Live in light of that reality. And it will give you a greater sense of hope and confidence about your life on this earth. And even the groanings of this life. In fact, he goes on in Romans 8 and he says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. All things. The groanings. It says God works in the groanings for good, for his purpose. And, and not all of those purposes are going to be fulfilled in this life. But they will have eternal value an eternal purpose. And even the groanings that we bring on ourselves by our own disobedience, God still works in those. There is never an experience that God cannot bring purpose and meaning to. And, and we can look all around this room and every one of us in this room will have one story, at least one story of one of those groaning times in your life in which God worked in such a way that something good came out of it. And in many cases, not just something good for this life, but something good of eternal value. So he says, in light of eternity, take things here in stride. You can still live with confident hope because God is at work, even in the groanings. Not only that, but he says, in light of eternity, he says, now love with a bold abandon. Because that kingdom come that Jesus taught us to pray about, that is the kingdom of God's love. Love is at the heart of making thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. The promise of, of this eternity that we have not only gives us a different perspective on our circumstances, it gives us a different perspective on our relationships. And so he says, so Christ's love compels us because we're convinced that one died for all, for all. Even the people we don't like. Even the people who have a different political view than we have. Even those people that we might argue with or have a different life philosophy than we have. Christ died for all. His love compels us to look at people differently. Therefore all died and he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves. That the kingdom come is about this kingdom of love. And that this life is about learning how to love. Learning to love is the best preparation that you can make for your life in eternity. So learning how to love is that important. In fact, in his first letter to the Corinthian church, Paul talked about love and he said, there are three things that remain, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. So if there's anything that we should give our time to in this short time period that we have in this world, it should be given to learning how to love. And, and in fact, that is why so much of our New Testament letters by Paul to different churches, so much of it is all about relationships, about learning how to love. Because Jesus came to break down the walls of anger and fear and distrust and bitterness and hatred. He came to break all of those things down so that we would live in this kingdom of love. And that's why Jesus came and he reached out and he would touch the untouchables. And he would speak to those that nobody else would speak to. That he gave time to a Samaritan woman. 
that he told the story about a good Samaritan, something that no self-respecting Jew would ever consider putting those two words together. That when Paul came and, and started bringing this message of God's love and his grace beyond the Jewish nation to the Gentiles, and the church had to figure out how we're going to incorporate Jews and Gentiles together because Jesus was supposed to be the Jewish Messiah. But he came for the whole world. See, that's what Jesus came to do. And so the lessons that we learn in love is, is really the best preparation we could have for eternity. I love the way Mother Teresa put it. She said, if you can't do great things, then do little things with great love. And if you can't do them with great love, do them with a little love. And if you can't do little things with little love, do them anyway. <laughs> because those are expressions of love. That is the school of love. And every time you come into contact with someone, you are coming in contact with someone who is an eternal being that God loves and that Christ gave his life for. And that's what Paul goes on and says. Oh, excuse me. This is what he says to, about love. Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. He says, live differently. In fact, he says, clothe yourselves. And, and that idea of clothing, if you think about your clothing, that is the first impression that you give people. That is the first thing people note about, note, notice about you is what you are wearing. And he's saying, this should be the most apparent thing about you. That you have compassion, that you are kind, humble, gentle, patient, forgiving. Those are the things that when people look at you as followers of me, of those who are bringing that kingdom from up there down here, that the first thing, the thing that should be most noticeable about you are these qualities and characteristics of love. And I think the biggest lesson of love is the lesson of forgiveness. Because that's when love is the hardest. There's a survey done not too long ago um, in the 2002 Journal of Adult Development. And they surveyed a number of people. Um, and and the, the finding that they, they've come up with was 75% of the people believed that they were forgiven by God for some past offense, something in their life. But they believed, 75% felt firmly believed that they had been forgiven by God. But only 52% believed in forgiving somebody else who had hurt them. And only 43% said they have actively pursued forgiveness of a wrong that they had inflicted on somebody else. Forgiveness might be the hardest love lesson there is, but it is at the heart of the gospel. So he says, in light of eternity, he says, live with that sense of confident hope, love with that bold abandon. And then one more thing, he says, lead people to Jesus. That this message is so incredibly powerful that people need to hear it. Last week, we, we talked about stewardship. And, and the great lesson of stewardship is that every one of us have a little bit of time and a little bit of resources and our job as stewards of God's resources is to take those resources and that time, which are temporary, and invest them in what is eternal. 
And that's what Paul is saying here. He says, since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. Now, I want to point out a couple of words. First is to fear the Lord. That is not in a cringing, cowering, you know, fear of a, of a despotic tyrant. It is about reverence and awe. Since we know how great God is, he said, and how loving he is, we try to persuade others. And again, that's the other word I want to point out. Persuasion is not about arm twisting or brow beating or, or coercion. It is simply saying, this is a message people need to hear. And we need to do everything we can to help people hear it. That there is an eternity, that you were created with an eternal destiny. And God has loved you with an everlasting love. And people need to hear that message. That is the message that Jesus proclaimed. That a new way of living is possible. That a new kind of love like the world has never seen has now been made here in this world. And that is the message that he's given us to spread to other people. He says that God was, was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us this message of reconciliation. That message is the message of your life and mine. It's a message that needs to be conveyed, but not just with words. But with words and actions and behavior. With compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and generosity and forgiveness. The words are important. But the words with the behaviors and the actions are what make it powerful. And you and I have a little bit of time and a little bit of resources. And we're to take what is temporary and invest in eternity. And you do that in the lives of the people around you. With those acts of kindness and compassion along with those words of hope. Confidence. Last weekend, um, I was at our Vallejo campus for the evening service there live and uh, met someone, was their very first time um, at Northgate. And uh, met her just before the service. She came in, she was sitting down. So I went over, introduced myself, and started talking with her. And she said, What kind of church is this? I said, Well, we're a non denominational Christian church. And she said, No, I know that, but what kind of church, what kind of church is this? I said, well, what do you mean? She began to tell me that she was raised in a very strict fundamentalist background um, church. And because of the path that her life has taken, she said, the only thing that I keep hearing from my parents is you're going to hell. She said, is this one of those kind of churches? I said, no. This is the kind of church that says you can go to heaven. That God loves you just the way that you are. And he accepts you. And he gave his life for you. So that you can live in that relationship with him. That's the kind of church we want to be. Because that is the message of the gospel. That's what we want people to hear. That's what we want to persuade people with. That there is a life beyond this one. And God has secured it for us. And, and, and this is, by the way, this is what is unique to the Christian faith. Of all the major world religions, every other world religion talks about getting it together, fixing yourself up, be a better person so that God will somehow love you. And the message of the gospel is God didn't wait for you to get it all together. 
I mean, just look around this room. There's the proof right there. <laughs> that he did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. That is his love. That is the confidence that we have. That it doesn't depend on me. Because he did for me what I couldn't do for myself. My job now is to live in that reality with that confident hope, no matter what circumstances I might go through, with a bold love and abandon for those who need to know that there's a God who loves them. And that I share that message, not just with my words, but with my actions and my behavior. John Ortberg writes about this idea of making up there come down here. He put it this way. It can happen. Every time you're in conflict with someone, want to hurt them, gossip about them, or avoid them, but instead you go to them and seek reconciliation and forgiveness, the kingdom is breaking into this world. Every time you have a chunk of money and decide to give it sacrificially to somebody who is hungry or homeless or poor, the kingdom is breaking into this world. Anytime someone has an addiction and wants to partner with God so much that they're willing to stop hiding, acknowledge the truth, and get help from a loving community, the kingdom is breaking into this world. Every time a workaholic parent decides to stop idolizing their job, rearranges their life to begin to love and care for the little children entrusted to them, the kingdom is breaking into this world. And every time you love, every time you include someone who's lonely, every time you encourage someone who's defeated, every time you challenge somebody who's wandered off the path, every time you serve the under-resourced, it is a sign that the kingdom is once more breaking into this world. Would you bow your heads with me? At this time, I'm going to turn it over to your Vallejo campus host. But for those of us here in this room, Maybe you're here today, and there are circumstances that are overwhelming to you, so much so that you think there is no hope. God can work in the middle of those circumstances. There's no brokenness that he cannot mend. There's no struggle that he cannot help you overcome. There's no sin that he will not forgive. There is no dead place in your life that he cannot make alive once again. And if you find yourself in a set of circumstances right now that just seem utterly hopeless, God can work good. And in the middle of that, your prayer can simply be, God, through me, through this circumstance, somehow make a little bit of up there, come down here. Or maybe you're in a relationship that needs mending, healing. Maybe you need to forgive. Maybe you need to seek forgiveness. But in light of eternity... Your prayer today is, God, I want, to make, I want to make a little bit of up there come down here. That's what it means to live in light of eternity. And if that kind of describes you today and you're facing something in your circumstances and in your relationships in which, God, I need a breakthrough of up there to come down here. And I could pray for you as we close. Would you just let me know by raising your hand? Just hold it up for a moment. Look up, catch my eye. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
maybe you're here today and you don't know the reality of that hope. That's what Christ came to do. He gave his life on a cross so that you could be forgiven, so those broken pieces could be mended. All you need to do is admit the need and just say, God, I can't fix this. I can't undo it. I need your grace. I need your forgiveness. I need your up there to come down here into my life. And maybe for the very first time, that's your prayer. God, I need you. Here's my sin. Here's my brokenness. Forgive me. I'm putting my life in your hands. If you've never done that before, but today it's a first step of faith for you. Same thing. Would you just raise your hand? Hold it up for a moment. Look up. Catch my eye. I want to acknowledge and pray with you and for you as we close. All right. All right. So, Lord, you know what's going on in each of our hearts. You know the struggles. You know the circumstances. You know the relationships that need mending and forgiveness. Lord, you, need, you know the hearts, those who raise hands saying, this is a first step of faith for me. And these moments, by that simple prayer, we are asking for your kingdom to come to bear in each of these situations, in each of these relationships. Lord, make a little bit of up there come down here through us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.